Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 14th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, it's all in the family with three Scientific American staffers on board. We'll talk to editor and novelist Mark Alpert about scientists in fiction. Ivan Oransky, the new managing editor online, is going to talk about what's going on at Siam.com. But first, Scientific American's David Biello happens to be in China on assignment. I spoke with him the evening of May 13th about the earthquake. Dave, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Tell everybody exactly where you are. I am in Shanghai presently and uh, traveling to Beijing later today. And how far are you from the earthquake? China is roughly the same size as the continental uh, U.S., uh, minus Alaska. I am on the far eastern uh, seaboard, so uh, the equivalent maybe of New York. And this uh, earthquake is in the far west, maybe the equivalent of uh, Arizona. Okay, nevertheless, you're a lot closer than we are. So, yes. So what's going on over there? Well, unfortunately, um, you know, it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, 7.8 on the Richter scale. The shaking lasted for two or three minutes. Uh, it, w- it was felt by some here, you know, all the way on the eastern seaboard, particularly those in uh, tall office buildings, um, which apparently swayed a bit, provoking nausea. But, of course, the far west was much harder hit, uh, at least 7,000 dead in one uh, small city, and I believe the death toll is about 18,000 and uh, still climbing as of this morning. Um, it's a very hilly area, Sichuan province, where this uh, uh, quake occurred. Uh, it's on the border of kind of the Tibetan Plateau, Himalayan uh, region, and um, unfortunately, much of the infrastructure um, has been destroyed by the earthquake, preventing uh, rescuers and uh, military personnel from uh, from reaching the scene of some of these uh, horrors and uh, and finding out what's uh, really going on. So now, since we're Scientific American, let's let's concentrate on some of the science aspects because people can go to pretty much you know any of the regular news sites for the for the general information about the yes. quake. So first thing that comes to mind, based on what you said is what is different about the geology in China that a uh, a quake that would happen, say, 2,500 miles west could still be felt on the east coast or the eastern seaboard where you are? Because if there's a quake out in San Francisco, we do not feel it in New York. Absolutely. I uh, Actually, that's an excellent question. There was a second quake, a much smaller quake, located near Beijing, and it, uh, basically concurrently, um, I think the uh, large quake happened about 2.28 p.m. and uh, the smaller quake happened about 2.35 p.m. Beijing is much closer um, to the east coast, and it may be that that second uh, quake, which I'm not sure whether it was an aftershock or a related quake, mm-hmm. uh, was what we felt on the east coast. I myself felt nothing, uh, but I was on uh, ground level, so uh, my experience of the quake has been primarily uh, people donating blood and, uh, um, you know, expressing uh, condolences for their cousins out west. One of the other aspects of this situation is the, the, the technology that goes into the building of structures. And does that, by, by what you're hearing, does that account for the high death toll, the, the fact that these structures are not as earthquake safe as they could be? Uh, that is definitely a factor. Um, there is a major construction boom going on 
in China at present, um, really across the board, and the scale of it is something to behold. The new buildings are certainly up to, let's say, international building standards, at least in the showcase cities of uh, Beijing and Shanghai and uh, Chongqing, which is uh, out in Sichuan, and even Chengdu, which has been hard hit by the quake. But older buildings, maybe we're not up to those international standards. Less important buildings were more quickly and, and weakly built. From what I hear, anecdotally, schools and hospitals have been particularly hard hit uh, by the quake, perhaps because of shoddy construction, according to some of the folks that I've talked to. What other scientific aspects of what's going on there can you tell us about? Well, what I can tell you is that uh, uh, a quake in this kind of Himalayan slash Tibetan plateau region has been expected for some time. Um, scientists uh, have been predicting uh, such a quake, uh, a big quake, for five to ten years. Obviously, this is a very active uh, geologic region of the world. India is slamming into the Asian uh, continent and uh, pushing up the Himalayas and just causing all kinds of stress to the rocks. The rocks uh, eventually slip and slide and uh, uh, create a huge natural disaster like this. Um, and unfortunately, there is no, let's say, method in place uh, that can provide even a, a few minutes warning um, before a tragedy like this strikes. Although I know that uh, they are working on such earthquake prediction technology in uh, California, and uh, they have some kind of up and operating in Japan. We had an article, I believe it was uh, summer of 2006, by Kip Hodges, who's now at uh, one of the Arizona schools. I forget if it's University of Arizona or Arizona State, um, on on the geology of the Himalayas. So uh, if people want more information about the the general kind of geologic situation that winds up being in play in this quake and in other quakes in that area, that's a good place to go look. Look for Kip Hodges on our uh, SiamDigital.com archive. What are you doing in China in the first place, Dave? I am on a reporting trip looking into environmental and scientific uh, issues as they are advancing in China today. Um, just happened to be here uh, when this uh, terrible earthquake struck. Well, when you get back, hopefully we can uh, talk to you about some of the reasons you actually went and get an update on whatever you learned about the quake in the rest of the time that you're there. Yes, I can uh, I can definitely tell you that there is an environmental angle to this uh, quake. Um, a lot of uh, electric and um, industrial infrastructure was destroyed uh, by the quake, leading to some chemical spills and other uh, nasty uh, impacts. It also is in the region where the uh, Wulong uh, Nature Preserve, famous for its panda breeding program, is located. So uh, there are, in addition to the immense human tragedy, environmental tragedies as well. Thanks very much, Dave. Thank you. Dave will be filing blog items, slideshows, and stories from China until May 23rd. That's all at Siam.com. Next up is one of Scientific American's editors, Mark Alpert. He mused in the May issue about scientists in fiction. We spoke in his office. Mark, how are you? I'm good. You have a column in the May issue called The Mad Scientist Myth. Is it really a myth? Yes, it's a myth. I mean, if you deal with scientists at all, you know that they're all not uh, bent on world destruction. Maybe a few of them, but just but not all. Right, Edward Teller comes to mind. But right. No, I'm kidding. 
Uh, what got me interested is I started writing a novel about science. It's called Final Theory, and it's out next month. But anyway, uh, it made me think, you know, am I falling into this trap of making the scientist this crazy, mad, uh, person who is only cares about some crazy ideal or, or, or is bent on, you know, proving something to the world so that he, he throws everything overboard. And, uh, I started worrying about that. And so I started reading other books and it's fairly rare to find books where scientists are, are realistically depicted. I mean, they're the, uh, the ones that I mentioned in the column, the, 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 maybe the, one of the first early books about real scientists is Arrowsmith. Uh, by Sinclair Lewis, which I read back in high school, and it made a big impression on me, and I reread it uh, for the purposes of this column, because um, it shows the uh, the scientist as a young man as being not a very likable guy, you know, just sort of confused about what he wants to do, but but more rejecting of everything. He he rejects uh, the uh, the quest for money and the request the the quest for fame, and and he wants to pursue pure research, but he keeps getting sidetracked all the time. So uh, it was it was an interesting story. Portrait of the scientist as a young man. Right, right. Uh, with warts and all, which I liked. Other books I mentioned were, um, there's, there's a newer one, um, by Allegra Goodman called Intuition, which is a really excellent book because it takes you right into a lab, um, up in the Boston area. I think it's based on the Whitehead Institute, actually. Um, in which you have all these postdocs and they're working feverishly on possible cancer treatments. And you see that these are, Young people who are extremely competitive, who are under a lot of pressure, and how mistakes can happen. And uh, it doesn't really come down hard on them. It just gives you a, a, a picture of these people, like I said, warts and all. And uh, you, you mentioned another book in the column. Well, John Updike's Rogers version, which I, I just love John Updike, so I thought I'd throw it in there. But there, he, it's based on a, a computer uh, programmer who um, thinks that he could find evidence of God by doing simulations of reality. And so Updike throws in all kinds of arguments about cosmology and astrophysics into the book, which I like. But there's also a great scene where he he writes about the researcher in the lab. It's late at night. He's trying to get the program to work. It's not working. And then suddenly he thinks he sees something on the screen, but then he closes his eyes and it's gone, and he's feverishly trying to find it again. So uh, I thought that really captured the experience of working late on a research project yeah. and not being in the best of frame of mind. Right. If, if anybody's running an SDS gel at about 1 in the morning, Friday night, Saturday morning, you, you might relate to that very well. Yeah, I had a problem myself, actually, when I was at Princeton. I was an astrophysics major, and I was looking at these uh, glass plates that showed images. I was supposed to be looking for quasars in these images of the sky, and uh, that was the best technology at this early 80s, these glass plates. And I was drinking a lot of coffee, and I was carrying the plate over to a microscope. I was actually looking at a microscope through these plates, and I dropped the thing, and it broke into a million pieces. And I was like, oh, no, these things are, like, irreplaceable. So I quickly put them in the back of my desk drawer, and I didn't tell my Advisor, it's this guy Don York. He's now at the University of Chicago. I saw him recently, and we talked about this. And it's funny now, but it wasn't funny back. You then. finally admitted it. Yeah, well, he knew. <laughs> it's just that I, I finally really apologized sincerely to the guy. Well, let's talk about the, the uh, most positive portrayal of a scientist in all of fiction, regardless of the the particular medium, and that, of course, is the professor on Gilligan's Island. Yeah, and and the famous line about him is he could make a radio out of coconuts, but he couldn't patch a hole in the boat. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe that's realistic. Scientists do get sort of, uh, you know, single-minded about their pursuits to the exclusion of everything else. 
Um, I was thinking also of um, in John Steinbeck in his Canary Row novels, there's the character of Doc. A very sympathetic character and uh, based, I think, on a real marine biologist of the 1930s. And, um, you know, this guy was just shown as sort of, um, well, almost like a Christ-like figure in the books. And so uh, I think that was a very positive portrayal and sort of a realistic portrayal of sort of a guy who's absent-minded and yet caring. It's interesting. We're not talking about science fiction so much as fictional science. Yeah, exactly. I mean, which is not to say that there are, in some science fiction books, you also do have some great portrayals of, of scientists. Um, uh, you know, I just saw, uh, the other day on the beach, uh, mm-hmm. the movie with Gregory with, Peck. With Fred Astaire. Right, and Fred Astaire plays, <laughs> it's his only movie when he doesn't do singing and dancing. And, uh, he comes across pretty well, actually. He's really into science and he's into race car driving. And, uh, in the end, of course, and I was amazed at the courage of that movie to just kill everybody off at the end. And in the you end. You just gave it away. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but they're saying right from the beginning, oh, the nuclear fallout's coming. We all have five months to live. And they all know that they're, you know, it's just wishful thinking to think otherwise. And, and in the end, uh, I think doesn't Fred Astaire, he kills himself by locking himself in the garage with his car. With the car running. Yeah. 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 Uh, So your book comes out next month. We're going to have you back in a few weeks to talk about your book and the portrayal of scientists in there. I hope I did a good job. I mean, you know, I've talked, I've been showing it now to certain physicists and getting some positive responses. So that makes me feel good. Like I didn't totally mangle it. And you know, another thing I wanted to mention this about the reality of science, you know, my book is just a thriller, okay? Take it as it, as it is. It's just a thriller. But one of the things I found while writing it is this concept of family in science and mentor and student relationships. Oh, yeah. It's very much like music where a, a pianist will trace his or her lineage back to Beethoven. And scientists will do that, too. I studied with this professor who took his doctorate with that professor who studied directly with Niels Bohr or who studied directly with Rutherford. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking of the, um, the, the, all, all the obituaries that they had for John Wheeler, who studied under Niels Bohr, and then was, um, you know, the people writing the obituaries were often students of John Wheeler. And so you see that there's generations of science, and that they are kind of like family generations, where one influences the next. Genetics is very much that way. It's, it's especially appropriate in genetics where they draw up genealogies for a living and all the geneticists will draw up their own genealogies so that somebody studied with uh, Kaufman who studied with somebody else who studied with T.H. Morgan. Right. Well, I experienced it a tiny bit, just a touch myself when I was at Princeton and I did my undergraduate thesis with uh, Richard Gott, the uh, theorist at Princeton. And, um, we worked on a paper together, and he actually gave me credit on this paper. He actually, you know, which was an amazing thing, you know, to, to list me, a mere undergraduate, as a co-author. And I'll always be thankful for that, but even more thankful for the opportunity to work with him. He gave me an idea, and he said, he said, work it out, you know, do the calculations. And um, I did them, and, and I got an answer, and I didn't know what it meant. Mm-hmm. So uh, so in the end, uh, I showed my uh, notebooks to Dr. Gott, and he says, he gave me the best compliment you can get from a physicist, which is, this is is non-trivial. And so I thought, you know, I got a, I got a little bit of a taste of it. I, I didn't go into science. As you know, I have had a, a sort of a dissolute life since then. But, uh, but I got a little taste of it, and I could see it operating in the scientific world. Well, thanks for this non-trivial conversation, Mark. You're very welcome. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the newly published platypus genome shows that at the genetic level, the odd critter is almost indistinguishable from a beaver. 
Story two: Captive cheetahs can get the cheetah version of Alzheimer's disease by eating their cage mates' feces. Story three: Viagra may help muscular dystrophy patients. And story four: Finally, a good use for nanotubes to test the hotness of chili peppers. We'll be back with the answer, but first, our new managing editor online is Ivan Aransky. To find out more about what'll be going on at our website in the coming months, I spoke to Ivan in Siam's library. Ivan, how you doing? Good, Steve. So tell us about what your plans are with the website. We are going to be doing a lot more of the kinds of stuff that our users already love. Our, all of our columns, uh, fact or fiction, obviously all of our news. The podcast, which I've heard about. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to get a real job. No, we're going to be doing lots more of that stuff, but we're also going to be adding some new things. Uh, a lot more interactivity on the website. You're going to see a lot of the stuff that the web is great at, uh, whether it's surveys and polls. We're going to be building, uh, hopefully, networks of other sites that we work together with, other editorial sites. Uh, we're really quite excited about that. Um, who, who else do we work with? Uh, Reuters. Uh, we have the Reuters feed, and you'll see lots of Reuters stories on our site, science and medical ones. Uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, we've just uh, launched that. It's been in the works for a little while, where we uh, use a lot of their material, some text, but a lot of images. As you'd imagine, these are some people with some pretty cool images of space and, and all kinds of things. So we're very excited about that. I did, don't worry, everybody. I heard that he said launched, but I, I decided to let it go. <laughs> Um, one thing we're launching this week, actually, is something called Where Are They Now? Uh, our users and, and listeners are no doubt familiar with the uh, Intel, NAE, Westinghouse uh, science talent search, which has been going on since 1942. And we've actually interviewed a couple of the winners over the last couple of years on, on this podcast. Absolutely. So uh, we are kind of, if you will, expanding that franchise a little bit and making it a more regular feature on the website and you, as as our listeners no doubt know, these are people who've gone on to all kinds of greatness. Some of them have just gone on to sort of pure old good-fashioned fun life. Uh, some of them have done both. Uh, the very first one that we profiled this week was Roald Hoffman, who, you know, managed to uh, parlay his uh, STS win in, I think it was 1955, into a Nobel Prize in 1981. And, and now he's you know, still doing science, but actually doing lots of poetry. And he does these events downtown here in New York and lots of fun and does a lot of cultural things. And he writes plays, too. Absolutely. So, you know, people like that, obviously. Not everyone has had quite as rich a life as Roald Hoffman, but uh, the woman who's highlighted today is, is uh, Mary Dale Chilton, uh, arguably sort of uh, one of the parents of agricultural biotechnology. Uh, somebody who's coming up on Friday, I don't want to give too much away here, but actually is a really top-notch reporter at a, uh, a newspaper you've definitely heard of. So really, some really fascinating people. We're launching this week because in Atlanta, and I'm actually on my way down uh, as this is uh, being broadcast, I'm on my way down to Atlanta uh, with the freelancer columnist who's writing this for us named Laura Vanderkam. And we're going to be live blogging, so please check out the website. Uh, look for the Siam Observations blog on our site. Uh, we're going to be live blogging from the Intel ICEF, the uh, International uh, Science and Engineering Fair uh, down in Atlanta, where a lot of the, it's not exactly the Science Talent Search, but it's another Intel event, same kinds of kids, 1,500 kids from around the world presenting. It's basically a big science fair, presenting all kinds of stuff, and uh, we're really excited about that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, this is listen, this is an opportunity for me to tell a Roald Hoffman story. 
Please. I've never told this in, in, uh, any group larger than three people. <laughs> so, uh, Roald Hoffman was actually my advisor my first year, my first semester of graduate school. I, I did not know that. And, um, I left a PhD program with a master's degree, which is sort of the equivalent of here are your lovely parting gifts. <laughs> so, uh, years later, Roald and I were at a function together and, uh, somebody attempted to introduce us not knowing that we knew each other fairly well. And, uh, this person said to Roald Hoffman, uh, do you know Steve? And Roald said, oh yes, he's one of our most successful failures. <laughs> now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, platypus is virtually a beaver at the genetic level. Story two, cheetahs ingesting feces develop Alzheimer's-like disease. Story three, Viagra could help muscular dystrophy patients. And story four, nanotubes to measure chili pepper hotness. Time's up. Story four is true. Oxford University chemists have developed a way to use carbon nanotubes to measure chili pepper heat. They reported their findings in the Royal Society of Chemistry journal called The Analyst. The current technique is to use taste testers, which is obviously highly subjective. The most reliable method uses high-performance liquid chromatography to measure the quantity of capsaicinoids. Those are the compounds responsible for pepper heat, but that technique is expensive and bulky. The new procedure involves adsorbing the capsaicinoids onto the nanotubes. You then measure the current change as the compounds are oxidized, and voila, you get an exact measurement. For more on pepper hotness, Google the phrase, Additional Unreported Dangers from Mexican Food. Story 3 is true. The drug sildenafil, sold as Viagra, may help some muscular dystrophy patients. A study in mice published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that the drug reduced the levels of heart muscle damage. It appears to work by stopping the breakdown of a compound called CGMP, which is involved in cell signaling. And story two is true. C.J.R. Minkle's May 12th article on the website called Feces May Transmit Fatal Cheetah Disease. I had an excellent headline for this story, abbreviated ESAD, that decorum prevented us from using. But this can safely be said of the beleaguered feline, cheetahs never prosper. All of which means that story one about the platypus being genetically almost indistinguishable from a beaver is totally bogus. Because the publication of the platypus genome last week showed that the weird mammal with some reptile physiology is a strange amalgam of mammalian and reptilian genetics. For more, check out the May 13th episode of the Daily Podcast, 60 Second Science, titled Platypus Genome is Duckbill Oddball. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out David Biello's China coverage over the next week plus at siam.com and sign up for the Daily Digest at siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.